Pastor Mike, and today we are continuing our series on the Beatitudes, Jesus' blessings from the Gospel of Matthew that turn upside down how we often define what it means to even be blessed. Because, recall, for Jesus, being blessed isn't about stuff or good circumstances. It's about drawing closer to God, entering into God's proximity, which, thus far, Jesus has said is true of the very last people that we'd expect. Not the rich, powerful, strong, but the poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek. They, Jesus has stated, understand his message first. They recognize their need for grace first. They enter into and let Jesus's kingdom upend their world first. That's the provocative message of the Beatitudes. And today, we're going to explore my personal favorite, which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I love this Beatitude because it just has so many layers that's way deeper than it often first appears. I want to break it down to show you what I mean. So let's take the first part of it, hunger and these are two very intentional, fascinating words. Now, most of us don't experience extreme hunger and thirst very often, if ever, do we? Who hasn't had something to eat or drink in, let's say, even the last six hours? Raise your hand. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> I mean, this just isn't our experience, right? For most Americans, insatiable longing for nourishment is something that we engage with via fiction, not everyday life. Such terms for us recall figures such as vampires or zombies, right? These things that crave something so deeply that they must consume it and will not stop until they do. Which leads us, I think, to simplify Jesus' metaphor in this passage to mean just really, really, really badly wanting something. Y'all know what I'm saying. But y'all, that was not how Jesus' audience would have received this message. Remember, before Jesus in this scene are poor, desert-dwelling Israelites living under crippling Roman taxation, sometimes up to 90% of what they made in a lifetime. Meaning that extreme thirst and starvation, these things weren't just nice metaphors. These were daily realities in their lives. So let's step into their shoes, okay? Let's try to get into their mind. Now, because of my privilege, I've never faced starvation or prolonged thirst, but I did do some research this week on just a few side effects of such things. So I just want to list them for you. When starving or dying from thirst, you can expect to experience pounding headaches, radical fatigue, irritability, poor emotional, cognitive, social functioning, the inability to concentrate at all, dizziness, fainting, disorientation, utter confusion, agitation, sleeplessness, and my favorite, agony. Oh. <laughs> Y'all, with this in mind, let's reconsider maybe what Jesus meant here. To truly hunger and thirst, to truly be hungry or thirsty, is to experience something profoundly unpleasant something that we did not choose to go through, this visceral longing that impacts our entire self, mind, body, motion, spirit, this absence of the very lowest level 
of Maslow's hierarchy of needs to have this dire, urgent need for something that we are lacking and will perish without. Did this beatitude just get more intense for anyone else in this room? It's fascinating. To simplify it, to break down the Hebrew and the Greek, let me just tell you this, what Jesus is saying here is be hangry sometimes. <laughs> but we have to ask that, for what then? Well, that's part two, righteousness, right? Jesus says, be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Now, this term is often misunderstood itself because we often are taught that it means kind of like personal piety, right? It means praying a lot when you wake up in the morning. Anyone else? But y'all, that's not what righteousness in the scriptures, the biblical worldview means. No, Jesus uses righteousness as defined by this Hebrew term, tzedakah. Say it with me, tzedakah. It's a fascinating term. You see, tzedakah describes the right, equitable, fair relationships that God intended and desires for humanity in this world and exemplifies himself in his own relational world. As Timothy Keller wrote, tzedakah isn't private morality. It refers instead to day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. Righteousness, right relationship. Thus, combine it all together. What is Jesus saying? Well, he says, blessed or close to God, proximate to God, are those so bothered by the fractured, unequal, unjust, unfair relationships that define our world that they feel this insatiable longing to see them made right again. A powerful, powerful image, is it not? one I want to explore today. And luckily, as with each beatitude, Jesus didn't just talk about this. He modeled for us what it means to be hangry for righteousness, particularly in this one showdown during his final week alive, where after sparring for years with Israel's leadership, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, intentionally recalling Old Testament prophecies concerning the arrival of God's Messiah, God's promised king the one that Israel longed for under the boot of Rome to come and make things right again, the one who would restore Israel. So, in other words, this is Jesus' WWE entrance, right? <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Right? He strolls into God's capital, the city of God, and he says, the king is here, which probably... <laughs> upset the current leaders of Israel, but that's a whole other thing. So Jesus comes in this provocative way, right? And then he does something even more provocative after that, and that is he beelines for Jerusalem's temple, which is the most meaningful building we can imagine in the biblical worldview. You see, for ancient Israelites, the temple was God's dwelling place on earth which doesn't mean that God was limited there. No, they understood that God, the infinite creator, is everywhere, but it was the symbolic space where they believed in this mysterious way that God dwelled with his people, with Israel, in a unique capacity. And they could enter into direct presence of God. And inside, everything was designed to reflect God's character and purposes in some capacity, including, for today, God's righteousness which it achieved by housing this thing called Israel's sacrificial system. Who loves Leviticus? Uh, yeah, it's strange. The temple had some strange stuff going on. You see, the sacrificial system were these symbolic ritual sacrifices that though very strange today, 
communicated in the cultural language of ancient Israel these deep truths about God's righteousness with the intended purpose of transforming God's people as they interacted and practiced these rituals. For example, let's say you sinned against God. You contributed to the brokenness of this world. Well, what do you do? Well, in remorse, you'd offer a sacrifice at the temple. And then God said you'd receive forgiveness. You know definitively that you were made right. You were made righteous with God again. Learning about the cost of sin and the accessibility of God's grace. Or how about this? Let's say you hurt someone else. You hurt your neighbor. What do you do? Well, you'd go to the temple with them, offer concrete restitution alongside a sacrifice, which you would then eat with them together as a shared meal, symbolically mending that fractured relationship while learning about the true nature and cost of reconciliation. Powerful stuff, right? Strange today, again, but powerful in the context of an Israelite. And that's all very simplified. But still, for our purposes today, it highlights these key purposes of the temple. To one, symbolize God's presence with his people, Israel, and two, to transform them into more righteous people. People who, after getting right with God, then seek to get right with others. People who go into the world after coming into the contact with the creator of this universe and do what? Make fair, equitable, right relationships. These foretastes of what God intends ultimately for the entirety of this creation. And those two key purposes inform what Jesus does next in the temple. Let's dive in. We begin in Matthew 21, verse 12, where we read, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overthrew the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Then the blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. So Jesus enters the temple and goes absolutely bananas, right? And this is one of those scenes that we kind of like read and we just don't think about what it would actually be like because this is actually quite aggressive. This is actually quite loud. This is quite noisy. This is quite, let's be honest, a little violent, right? You know, Jesus walks into the temple and I want you to imagine this. Imagine that Scott is preaching on Sunday, right? And then in the middle of the service, I just walk in and go... Do I have your attention yet? All eyes are where? On me. It's dramatic, right? It has a flair for drama. And you see, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is acting like an Old Testament prophet. Now, for those who are new to the Bible, the prophets were sent by God in the Old Testament to challenge Israel's leaders with urgent, symbolic messages whenever they rejected their calling embracing idolatry and justice or violence. These dramatic attempts, trying to convince them to change course before they led Israel to disaster, before they drove Israel off a cliff, let's be honest. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is acting in this way of taking up this prophetic mantle, this prophetic mantle to challenge Israel's leaders over their current path. And I want to unpack this action because it's going to help us understand what Jesus believes is taking place here. So remember, the temple's two purposes, God's dwelling, vehicle of righteousness. Now, look at what Jesus' targets are. First, he flips over the tables of 
Who remembers? The money changers. Now, these were tables where you could, for a fee, exchange currency, kind of like at the airport. You guys know what I'm talking about? Why? Well, imagine you're traveling from Rome and you don't want to drag 12 goats with you for 2,000 miles to the temple in Jerusalem. So instead, what you do is you'd go to one of these tables, you exchange your Roman currency for some temple coinage, buy a sacrifice in Jerusalem, boom, good to go, right? It's practical, right? What's so bad about that? Well, here's the thing. You see, in Jesus's day, Israel's leaders had moved these tables from outside the temple to inside the temple. And we're like, well, why would you do that? Well, it's a very obvious reason. So they could monopolize this trade, jack up the rates of exchange, and then profit off of them solely. Regardless of how this impacted the poor, Israelites just trying to come and worship their God. Let me ask you, does that sound like building right, equitable, fair relationships in God's good world? No. No. Which informs Jesus' second target. He flips over the benches of people selling what? Who remembers? Doves. Why does that matter, Pastor Mike? Well, doves in the Old Testament were the sacrifices of the poor. What Leviticus stated one could use in the sacrificial system if they couldn't afford a goat. The most poor Israelites used this sacrifice. And altogether, what happens here is that Jesus walks into God's house and he sees not God's presence being honored, not righteousness, but the exact opposite. Just one more place in this broken world where the powerful take advantage of the powerless for their own personal gain. And y'all, Jesus gets ticked. Am I right? He gets mad. He flips over these symbolic tables proclaiming my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. And this is a statement that's formed of two combined scriptures. And I actually want to just read through them in their entirety rather than summarize them because I think they're powerful. The first is Isaiah 56, where the prophet Isaiah challenged Israel's leaders over injustice by writing, check this out. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. What's the next term? Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds holds its fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial, a better name than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure for forever and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Amen. See, for Isaiah, God's purpose And this story of this universe was always to draw all of humanity back to himself. And in that, Israel had this explicit role. And that was to be a light to the world, a light to the nations, a people who reflect God's character outward to said nations by how they live in this different righteous way that sets them apart from the fractured humanity that defines every other space of this place. 
Thus, quoting Isaiah, Jesus walks in the temple. He looks around and he says, I ain't seeing much light here. Only injustice. Before adding worse, I see y'all making it into a den of robbers or bandits. And this is a charged term. This doesn't just mean thief. This means someone who uses violence for personal gain or insurrection. And this comes from Jeremiah 7, where the prophet Jeremiah challenged Israel's leaders for pursuing not just injustice, but also war with this little empire called Babylon. We read, this is what the prophet Jeremiah writes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you, it's a great part, it's my favorite part. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn innocence to ball and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? Whew! It's intense, right? But for good reason. In Jeremiah's day, Israel's leaders weren't just actively ignoring righteousness. They were actively practicing unrighteousness. They were pursuing war, violence in the name of God while thinking that just having this stupid building made that okay in his eyes. Together, what I want to summarize this as, I think together, both passages capture this recurring brokenness that takes place in the history of God's people, where in complacency, God's people forget their purpose. In apathy, they forget that we're made right with God, not because we're superior, not so we can do whatever we want, but so that we can, in response to God's grace, become conduits of his restoring righteousness in an otherwise shattered, fractured, dark world. So God's like, you're missing the point. The temple doesn't just free you to break my world without consequence. You are given the temple so that by dwelling with you, you might become a conduit of something better. Change course. But alas, prophets were ignored. Spoiler alert, Israel sought war with Babylon, and guess who won? The empire of Babylon, not the small nation of Israel. They get crushed. The temple gets destroyed. The people taken into exile. It's a disaster perhaps the biggest one in Israel's history. And it's a tragic story that Jesus is playing out all over again in his day. And this is just a brief history lesson. You see, in Jesus's day, as Israel's leaders had increasingly come to believe and to preach that God desired not peace, but guess what? Holy war, not with Babylon, but with who? Rome. Holy war with Rome. Because, of course, they thought that their enemies must be God's enemies, right? Same with us today, right? The people we don't like, God doesn't like, right? Which Jesus warned against repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Matthew, stating clearly that he was the king of peace, come to restore, not further break God's world. 
to, through self-sacrifice and the surrendering of his power, fulfill God's purposes of drawing humanity in, even the Romans. And yet, he walks into this building that symbolizes God's deep desire to dwell with and transform his people into these conduits of righteousness, and y'all, like, does not recognize like. Instead of finding righteousness, Jesus finds God's house once again being treated like a robber's den of injustice as Israel's leaders bumble their way towards another disastrous war with the very human beings that God called his people to be a light to. And Jesus says, enough. He says, enough. What does he do? He shuts the temple down symbolically, taking on this role of prophet and then fulfilling its purpose himself. What was the temple's purpose? Was it not to heal the broken and to make right what has gone wrong? That's what Jesus does right there in his walls. He says, that's your calling, God's people. This is what you're meant to be, this conduit of healing, change, course. Which, of course, they ignore. Y'all know how the gospel ends, right? Do they listen to Jesus? No, they reject him, killing him. And in 40 years, pursue a war with Rome. And once again, y'all, Israel gets leveled. Another senseless tragedy in a history of senseless tragedies. And yet, the gospel story, because and yet, God redeems even this, transforming this tragedy into his victory over evil through resurrection. This Easter moment that explodes out and starts drawing humanity to God through Jesus, the resurrected king. Y'all, that's why we're all here today, right? Most of us aren't Jewish. We've been brought into God's people through this story, this upside-down moment in which God takes what looks like defeat and proclaims liberation for humanity, which informs this beatitude's final part. Because what does God promise for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? That they'll be what? Filled. That they'll be filled. Y'all, I've got bad news. We're never going to fix this world fully by ourselves. I got really bad news. <laughs> you can try your entire life. It ain't going to happen. We'll only ever long for everything to be made right. But y'all, Jesus reminds us that there's one who can and who will one day. This loving, faithful, righteous God who through a cross and an empty tomb promised that this story's universe does not bend towards evil. It does not bend towards oppression. It does not bend towards death, but rather it bends in one direction and that's towards justice. The restoration of righteousness throughout God's good world. That's how this story ends. Through Jesus, God promised that one day our hunger and our thirst will be filled. That is our sure good news hope. And y'all, it should transform us. Not into people who are complacent, but into people who are more righteous. Into people who respond to this world's brokenness, not with apathy, but by letting Jesus work through us to set it right here and now as foretaste of God's new creation hope at the end of this universe's story. That's our calling. That's what it means to be the people of God. I have bad news if you're here. That's what you signed up for. <laughs> Y'all thought you were just getting a Sunday sermon. And this is not at me. This calling, it's not at me all week. 
I think primarily it's just got me thinking about Jesus, the prophet, who, let's be honest, everyone, let's just be honest, it's a safe space, is uncomfortable, right? As someone who raised in hellfire and brimstone churches, I did not like this passage for a great many years. I greatly preferred Zen Jesus, not hangry Jesus. <laughs> but I've, over the years, I've come to recognize that we need both, right? That actually, I would be alarmed if Jesus didn't flip over our tables sometimes. That I'd be alarmed if Jesus looked at things like war, greed, injustice, poverty, racism, human bondage, child starvation, and didn't get mad. Y'all, it's good news that our God gets angry over this world brokenness, that he loved creation too much to just sit by, that instead our God came down in Jesus to lovingly confront us, to change course in such moments when we are hell-bent on destroying ourselves, others, and his good world. It is good news that our God hungers and thirsts for righteousness and calls us and me to feel that righteous anger too which might sound wrong, okay? And I get that. See, I grew up with this mindset that anger was a bad emotion. Anyone else? And I get why. It's easier to teach it that way. I get why. When ignored or overfed, anger becomes resentment, hate, contempt, wrath, these very destructive parts of our humanity. And yet, I have also come to recognize that there are no bad emotions, y'all. We've been given all of them for a reason. See, all emotions instead are either healthy or unhealthy based entirely upon whether or not I'm feeling them in the right amounts for the right reasons and expressing them in the right way. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Which is true for anger too. When healthy, anger simply tells us that something's not right, that we need to move, that we need to change. And that impulse can be good. If it wasn't, then would Jesus have modeled it? No. Now, to be clear, some of y'all heard me say that, and like me, you've got anger issues. Like the Hulk, you're always angry. And you're like, amen, Pastor Mike. Amen. I should be allowed to go off the rocker every time something inconveniences me. But to you, I've got some bad news. Because you see, embracing Jesus' model of righteous anger also means defining and accepting how he acted upon it, too. Which, let's be honest, is very different than we often want. For one, notice, does Jesus attack the people operating the tables? Nope! Because righteous anger targets broken systems and broken circumstances, not people. Y'all, when angry, it's easy to scapegoat. I can scapegoat with the best of them. It's way easier to scapegoat than to address actual complex issues. Blaming and taking out our anger on those that we don't like or who just aren't like us. Which Jesus fundamentally, hear me on this, fundamentally rejects. Guess who was scapegoated? Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's not a fan. No, Jesus got angry at injustice, recognized its complexity, and then acted against its systems, its deeper causes, but never in ways that harmed others or ignored their inherent God-given dignity. That's essential to understanding what we're talking about today. I think second, righteous anger also is never about me. Y'all, you're not Jesus in the temple when you're yelling at someone in traffic. I'm sorry, you're just not. 
Righteous anger isn't about balancing wounded pride. It's not about getting even. It's not about control or imposing my will onto others. Those things are diametrically opposed to the anger that Jesus affirms. And that's because righteous anger never consumes. It always restores. God's justice is always restorative and reconciling, not retributive or isolating. It seeks to redeem what's estranged from God. And thus, for anger to be righteous anger, it must serve that purpose, tangibly making this world more whole, producing more right, equitable, fair relationships, moving us closer towards what's broken for its healing, growing more in our capacity to love God, love neighbor in this world. And if instead our anger adds to this world's brokenness, continues cycles of retaliation and escalation and violence, if instead it makes us less like Jesus, more hard-hearted, more resentful, more willing to dehumanize and harm those we sinfully call enemy, then it is not righteous anger. It is sinful wrath, and y'all, it has no place in God's house, period. Righteous anger creates godly passion for restoration, leading us to engage what's wrong with truth-telling, compassion, grace, restitution, and righteousness like Jesus did. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So during this last song, let's all reflect, where are you righteously angry? Is it over racial injustice, environmentalism, inequality? Where? Because what I want to posit for you is that might just be Jesus nudging you to volunteer, to give, to become a conduit of righteousness in that fractured space because, y'all, that's what it means to be blessed. Amen? Amen. Amen.